Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This summer we are looking at missions, and the text we are using to guide us is the text of the Great Commission, found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Today we'll be especially focusing on verse 17, which talks about doubt. As it pertains to doubt, we'll be looking at three things. The presence of doubt in the Christian life, the tension that doubt causes, and also the biblical remedy for doubt. Our passage picks up right after Jesus was raised from the dead, and he sees the women, and he tells, to, tells them to have his disciples meet with him. Verse 16 reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Through those first two verses, we can see that being a follower of Jesus does not mean that we will not have doubts. We also see that Christ did not expel them for their doubt. In other words, having doubt does not make us any less loved by God in any way, shape, or form. This type of doubt that this passage is referring to is the Greek word distazo, which is only mentioned one other time in Scripture. And it specifically means to hesitate, to waver. The other time when this word comes up is when Jesus is walking on water. The disciples are in the boat, and it's nighttime, and they see a figure walking towards them. Perplexed by this, they become fearful. And Peter, being Peter, says, Lord, if that, if, if that is you, let me come to you. And Peter literally takes steps of faith, inching closer and closer to Jesus. And the Bible tells us that as he saw the wind, he began to become fearful. And through that, he lost his footing. But Jesus, with his gracious outstretched arms, spared him from disaster, saying, You of little faith, why do you doubt? In both of these cases where this word comes up, we see that the disciples saw something that caused a dissonance between the reality that was before their eyes, that being Jesus walking on water and Jesus being raised from the dead, and the reality that they know to be true, that being people do not walk on water and they certainly do not come back from the dead. This dissonance between what we know and what we see is oftentimes how doubt begins to creep in. For example, we know that God is loving. We know that God is just. We know that God is faithful. But we see a world in which there's evil, there's hunger, there's suffering, there's pain. And we're trying to make sense of this. In seeing these two things, our hearts begin to say, well, if God is truly loving, then why is there pain? If God is truly all-powerful, then why is there evil? Some of us use this rationale as our one-two punch against God, concluding 
that an all-powerful and all-loving God must truly not care for the human condition if these things continue to exist. So in a haste to resolve this dissonance, the world tells us to just take God out of the equation. But the problem with that alternative is this, is that it does not do away with these same issues. You're still dealing with evil, sin, death, hunger, pain, suffering. All you've done in removing God from the equation is you are removing the moral lawgiver. But yet you're still clinging to a moral law claiming that these things are evil, that this is unjust. In doing so, you have no grounds to make that claim just as someone else has, has no more grounds to say what you're saying is completely rubbish. The beautiful thing about our faith is that the Bible is not afraid to address these issues. Let's look at the Psalms. Psalm 10, the psalmist asked God, why do you stand far off, hiding yourself in times of trouble? In Psalm 37, the psalmist filled with righteous indignation sees the wicked plotting and scheming to take advantage of the poor and needy and righteous and calls out to God. Psalm 73, the psalmist grieving over the fact that the wicked are living carefree, amassing their wealth, while there are others around them who live in poverty. Psalm 2, this, the psalmist is discouraged in seeing that corrupt world leaders and evil regimes that are motivated by greed and conquest exist as they're threatening the lives and serenity of their constituents and those around them. You see, in all these cases, here's what the psalmists do. If you read through those psalms, you'll see that they look to the, to the sovereignty of God, and secondly, they look to the character of God. To address the big questions that causes doubt in their hearts, they look to God's power and they look to God's faithfulness. Essentially, in doing so, they remind themselves that God cares and God can act. He's empowered to change, change the situation and he will change it. Essentially, what they're doing is they're trusting the process. We, we trust the process for things that are not as, not as great day in and day out. Look at Jesus. When faced with these same issues, what did he do? He fed the hungry, healed the blind, preached the gospel to the poor, and ensured that people knew that the kingdom of God was coming. That was just a foretaste of how God will handle these big questions of suffering, pain, and evil. The fact of the matter is this. Our temptation 
is to fool ourselves into, into thinking that having all the right answers will quench our doubts. The problem with that is that it does not get at the issue of the heart. Consider Adam and Eve. They knew that God loved them. They intimately walked with God. They were in the presence of God. They had God's word directly spoken to them. And still, all the devil had to do was say, did God truly say X, Y, Z? Does God truly love you? God is trying to keep you down. Quite frankly, we oftentimes look at them and scoff, but we must realize that we would have fallen to the same fate. Even if we were to have all the answers to life's hard, hard questions, when the invitation of more comes, our hearts will be unsatisfied. We see this with people who accomplish phenomenal things and they get to the top of their respective domains, that being sports, law, science, whatever the case may be, and you ask them, how does it feel? And they look you in the eyes and tell you, I thought there would be more. In light of this, we must embrace the fact that we will not have all the answers on this side of eternity. One of the hidden treasures of doing this is that we will begin to worship God for God as opposed to worshiping God for what he can give us, that being answers and deliverance and so on and so forth. But we are now focusing on the nature of God himself. And also, we must do what the psalmists teach us, to look at the sovereignty of God and the character of God for our hope in the face of doubt. And holding these two things together, we can see doubt for what it really is. It's a deceiver. It causes us to make an idol out of the evil that we see, out of the pain and suffering that we see. And it causes us to think that these things are greater than God and God cannot overcome them. And it also shifts our focus from the reality that Christ has conquered death, Christ has conquered evil, and Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and that his kingdom will have no end. Essentially, Christ will come to deliver the goods. Holding on to the sovereignty of God and the character of God is also what Christ gave to his disciples. You see, the Bible tells us that they were worshiping when this doubt began to creep in. And the first words that Christ says to them in verse 19 is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To address their doubts, Christ looks at them and affirms the sovereignty of God. And the last thing he says in verse 20 is that, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, affirming the character of God, the faithfulness of God. 
You see, in saying this, Jesus is not telling us to do something that he has not himself already done. Jesus lived it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus died, Jesus was begging God, if there's any way for this cup to be removed from me, please make it come to pass. Take it away from me. All Jesus really had to rely on at that time were two things. The sovereignty of God, that God can indeed raise him from the dead, and the character of God, that God is faithful in his word and will actually do it. You see, Jesus faced the reality of being forsaken by God so that we could have the assurance that God will never leave us nor forsake us. So in doing so, we can boldly look to the sovereignty of God when it comes to our doubts and know that God reigns supreme in spite of our circumstances. And we also can boldly look at the character of God, knowing that God is faithful, just, and loving, and he actually cares about us to move in our lives. If you read the text closely, you'll see that even though they, even though they were doubting, this did not excuse them from the call of the Great Commission. In the same vein, it does not excuse us from the call of the Great Commission. Instead, what happens is this. After Jesus encourages his disciples by telling them that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he says, therefore, go. Christ's sovereignty is what is driving us to engage in the Great Commission. Christ's sovereignty is, is the driving force that allows us to partake fully in missions and outreach. In other words, if there's no sovereignty over sin and death and the problems of this world that we see, then there will be no good news to proclaim. But because Christ is supreme and because Christ is loving, Christ is faithful, and because Christ is truly who he says to be, who he says he is, we can engage in missions and outreach, knowing that in doing so, we are proclaiming that the kingdom of God is coming. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.